Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Jesus gave some commands that were a little bit different than maybe what we typically think of. And so we're kind of spending a couple of weeks, a few weeks, looking at these commands that Jesus came, that Jesus gave, the do not commands. And and to kind of set up some background for this, you know, Jesus came and when he arrived and and, and started off his public career, what Jesus came to do was to launch a brand new um, context, a brand new possibility, a brand new way of being in relationship with God. And in fact, he even changed some of the ways that we talk about God. Jesus walked around and said, you know, he, he talked about your heavenly father and nobody had really kind of used that language before, but Jesus said, yeah, this is, this is the way that you should be viewing God in your relationship with God. And he called some followers around him. Um, he engaged them in the mission of what he was trying to accomplish. And they followed him, not because of the cool things he did. And he did a lot of cool things, not because of the cool things that he said. And he said a lot of cool things, but they followed him because they believed who Jesus claimed to be. He made some incredible, incredible claims about himself, and that was the foundation of their faith. That's why they followed him, because he said who he was. And then they killed him. And when they killed Jesus, everybody, just all that Jesus had claimed about himself and said about himself, it was all undermined, and it was all kind of washed away. And all of his followers, they, they, they unfollowed, and they unplugged from following Jesus, because if the things that he claimed about himself were true, then surely... Surely it couldn't be true that he also would die. He claimed he was the way, the truth, and the life. So how do you kill the life, right? He claimed to be the son of God. Surely God would not let his own son die. But then history tells us that a few days after his crucifixion, they all came back because they claimed that they saw the risen Jesus. And they re-plugged in and re-followed Jesus again. And when they saw him alive, it had no longer undermined everything that he had claimed. But when they saw him alive, it punctuated. It put an exclamation point on everything that he had claimed about himself. And so early Christianity was built on on regular people like you and me. They weren't super educated. They weren't super religious. They were fishermen and tax collectors and just regular Joes who were so common that doesn't even tell us what occupation they had or where they came from. But early Christianity was built by people like you and me who saw something and experienced something that was so life-changing that their lives were never the same. And because their lives were never the same, the world has never been the same. And Christianity began to take over their world. And Christianity, not with Bibles and not with buildings or religious programs, but because of the testimony and the witness of those early Christians, Christianity began to take over the first, cent- first and second and third century world. And, and what they saw and experienced, that early church, it compelled them to, to live differently. And they treated people differently, and they included people into their circles that normally would not have been included. And they they loved each other as Jesus had commanded them to love, as Jesus had shown us how to love. And, And to their broken and to their hurting and their very divided world, there was this hunger for that holy kind of spirit that fueled the early church. And I think that in 2019 for us, City Grace, it's such a, a, an incredible opportunity as well. We live, it seems like, it feels like, in times just as divided and just as dark and hurting and broken as what they experience. And we, with the love of God, we can have the same impact with that same Holy Spirit working inside of us. Hello, if it changed the world once, it can change the world again. 
Because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on the Holy Spirit in us. And His Holy Spirit is still the same. And, and in fact, today is, is, I don't know if you know this, anybody get those weird notifications on your calendar? Like, today is Canadian Boxing Day. Like, anybody, like, today's not really Canadian Boxing Day, but you get that when you're like, what in the world, why do they celebrate boxes? Like, it doesn't even make sense. You might know, or you might not know, but today is actually Pentecost Sunday. How many of you knew that? Pentecost Sunday. Right, like seven of us. Great. It's, it's a, um, but today is Pentecost Sunday, which is now for the Christian church. It's a celebration of the day that the Jesus movement kind of launched. And we call it the church, but back then they didn't really know what to call it. But today was the day, the first day, that the everybodies and the nobodies of the world, people like you and me, everybody's and nobodies and somebodies, you're somebody, you're not a nobody, don't worry about that. But it's, it's the first day that just us... Just regular people like you and me were filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit just as Jesus had promised would happen. And that promise is still on offer today. That's why the church is still alive. That's why the church is still thriving because God's Holy Spirit is still in effect of the day. It's the fuel for what the church was called to do and to be. And it's still our fuel today to be what the church was called to do and be. In fact, it launched on the day of Pentecost with this this statement uh, by Peter. Peter replied to the crowd that was around, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here's the beautiful part. That promise is for you. Point your finger at three people and say it's for you. How many only did one person? You really need the promise. Come on. Point your finger at three people and tell them it's for you this morning. The promise is for you. And it's for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That was the fuel of the early church. That wasn't the goal of the early church. It was the fuel for the early church. And it was the Jesus force that was kind of gifted to live inside of them, and it drove them to live differently, live life differently, to live for one another instead of against one another. And in fact, at the end of that chapter, it tells us what they did next. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And so today, when we go home, we're all going to put our houses on the market, and we're all going to bring an offering next week, and it's going to be amazing. I can't wait for that. Okay. And they blew the minds of all the people in their communities, right? Because nobody's that generous. These people weren't, you know, any less selfish than us. They were regular people. They were no less concerned about food and health care and housing and all of these things, but they were filled with this new kind of spirit that changed them. It transformed them, and they began to live life differently. And in fact, one of the things they did, look at this, they broke bread in their homes. Somebody say small groups. Somebody say it's the last day to sign up. You guys see what I did there? I'm so good. I've been training for this. They, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And it just seems like this narrative today that so many people are anti-Christian and anti-Jesus and anti-the church. If we could get back, City Grace Church, if we could get back to treating our broken and hurting world like these people treated their broken and hurting world, we can change our broken and hurting world. Hello. The early church, the early church is goodwill for the people. Earned them the favor of the people and gave them influence with the people. 
That was their model for change. That was their model for introducing the gospel to the whole world. They were for the people that gained them the favor of their people, of the people, and gave them influence with the people. So that Holy Spirit, it changes us. It's supposed to transform us, just like Jesus had promised. And the attitudes and, they, and the behaviors that they lived out, they were shaped by the Spirit and the commandments that Jesus had given his closest followers. And after he had risen, he gathered his closest followers, told them, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And so that's what, he, that's what they did. They went out and they started telling everybody all of the commandments that Jesus had given. But they were weird commandments. They were strange commandments. They were commandments that it doesn't even seem like you can't command. Commandments like, do not fear. Anybody ever told you to don't be afraid? And you're still what? You're still afraid. It's do not worry. Anybody ever told you don't worry about it? And what do you do? You worry about it. Come on, we do that. Everybody, anybody ever heard don't judge me? Right? Only God can judge me. Anybody heard that? Right? Don't judge. We all judge. We know we do. Doubt. Don't doubt. But we still doubt, right? Whether we want to or not. And today, there's another seemingly impossible command that Jesus gave that we're going to look at today. And it's this right here. Do not sin. This is a tough one, right? This is a tough one right here. Man, some of you want to punch me in the nose right now. That's a sin. You better not do it. Do not sin. This is a big one. This word right here, sin, for most or for some of us, this word kind of makes us shift around in our seats, right? It's one of the re- this word is one of the reasons we don't like going to church. Don't, don't talk about the sin word, right? And, 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 you know, maybe if you're newer here, you're thinking of replugging into your faith, reengaging with your faith. You're like, man, this is the wrong day for me to show up in church. And it's just like, but it should, it should make us kind of uncomfortable. And then for some of us, like we're pros, you know, we're, we're Christians of Christians, right? We have the Christian C on our chest and wear a red cape and walk around with our underwear on the outside of our pants. We're just super, super Christian. And we don't shift around so much, you know, because... Well, because we're Christians, but the fact is, the more Christian we are, the more aware of our sin we should be. And if it doesn't make us uncomfortable to think about sin, maybe we should realize that there is still sin in us. Or, this is another thing that we do. I mean, we think we found some loopholes, right? Come on, somebody. Anybody ever found a sin loophole? Just be honest in church this morning. You guys know what I'm talking Or we rank sins, right? I-, I might do this, but at least I'm not that. I might be me, but at least I'm not him. I'm not like her. Anybody want to be honest again in church? Anybody ever had an at least I'm not moment? Come on. Nobody. Man, you guys are liars, sinning. But sin, that's a big, fat, hairy word, isn't it? Sin. Nobody likes owning up to this word sin. But here's the funny thing. If I was to go around or pull the room and say, how many people here are perfect? Nobody, nobody would raise their hand because we know we're not perfect, right? But then if I come back and ask us right after that, how many here are sinners? Well, we still don't want to raise our hand, do we? Let me tell you what's going on in the front row right now. Everybody's like this, right? No, we know we're not perfect, but none of us want to own this title of being a sinner. There are so many emotions attached to that word and, and the story where this kind of commandment to do not sin, it, this idea comes from, you know, from Jesus. It's no less emotional 
in the story. It's no less tough to wrestle with back then for them than it is for us today. And, and a lot of you, as I go through this story, as soon as I start into the story, you're going to say, well, I know that story. Don't rush to the ending if you know this story. Stick with me in the details, and maybe we can find something a little bit fresh and new in this. But this story, what we're going to look at today, the interaction of Jesus today, is such a huge deal because it represents this kind of clear break between the way that Jesus handled the idea of sin and the way that religion handled the idea of sin way back then, and even sadly, the way that religion today, some religion today, handles the idea of sin. And in this story, again, so many emotions. There's shame in this story. There's condemnation and guilt, and there's self-righteousness even. There's remorse in this story. But then, at the end of the story, for all of us, I think we can find this. There is hope, and, and there's redemption, and there's beauty because of the way that Jesus talks about this word, sin. And so I, I want to kind of get into the story, but I want to share some of the details and kind of set up the backstory and the context for what's going on and why this is such a groundbreaking moment in Jesus's teaching. And to start off, I want to show you the Jewish temple site or a, re, a model of the Jewish temple site way back then. Today, we would call this the Temple Mount, and it looks a lot different than that right there. But in the first century, that was the site of the Jewish temple. And the Jewish temple was not like a church. Like, you know, here we have churches just about on every corner. For the Jewish people, there was only one temple in the, on the whole planet, and, and it represented the presence of God. It was this place for the Jewish people where heaven and earth kind of overlapped, and it was about 30 acres in area, and, and there were trees in there. It's not shown in the, in the picture here. There was different court spaces marked out, um, and, and these court spaces were used to kind of segregate the women from the men. They were used to segregate the Jewish people from the non-Jewish people. In fact, our story today takes place in what's called the court of the Gentiles, the court of the people who are not Jewish. And so right off the bat, we can see that that religion had kind of taken this, this southern turn, and, and racism even was, it was even a part of, of the first century Jewish mindset. But then in the center is that, that complex right there, that little building inside of the courts where the holy place was, and even where the holy of holies was. And within that room, the holy of holies, there was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, and, and supposedly the original tablets or the original documents of the Ten Commandments are in there. And, and, and it was just this really special and really holy place. And then our story took place in one specific area, and it's kind of to the left, if I can mark it out with this green circle. I didn't know how that would show up, but that green circle to the left, that's the, kind of the court of the Gentiles area, and the purple circle in the middle, or the lavender circle, I didn't want to go straight pink, but that's the ladies area right there. There's the court of the ladies. That's as far as the ladies were allowed to go, but not at City Grace. You guys can go anywhere you guys want. We're just so much, so much better here. Anybody want to preach? Okay, I'll keep going. But the, so the, the green area, the court of the Gentiles, the non-Jews could only go to there and couldn't go any further. They couldn't get any closer to God. And, and beyond those center walls, this is an amazing thing and, and, and kind of a scary thing really. Beyond those center walls, there was an altar there. And in that, uh, on that altar and within those walls, they killed animals all day long to make atonement for the sins of the people. It was a smelly place. There was blood, and there was stench, and there was the smell of manure with the animals there, and just the general animal smell, and there was the smell of burnt flesh and, and singed hair, and it was just a nasty, gross, smelly place. It was loud. It was so smelly. Did I say it was smelly? It was smelly, and it was loud, and there was all of these odors because it was smelly in there, and it was just this bloody, 
scary place, and the priests were there, and as they would slit the throats of the animals, blood would splatter everywhere. Just this bloody, gory place of worship to their God, right? And it was so strange, but it was their, it was their holy place. When those people thought of God, when those people thought of what we might think of when we say the word church, these were some of the images they had in mind. These were some of the sights and the sounds and the smells that came to mind. Imagine going to church and bringing your goat or bringing your bull, whatever it is, and you walk in together as a family, and then you get to that purple area, and the, the ladies have to stay there, and only the men can go further, and they bring their sacrifice to the priest, and, and the priest slices open the throat and drains the blood. And then offers it, you know, cuts up the animal, butchers it, and then offers the animal right there on the altar. And, and there's the singed hair and the burnt animal. And, and some of you are thinking, I used to go to that church, right? Like, reminds me of your message last week, Jared. Just like, but these are some of the emotions that they had. These were some of the things going on in the story. And somewhat recently, the excavated southern stairs, it's kind of outside the temple complex in that green circle area. There were these stairs that they would use to enter the temple compound, about 240 feet wide, massive, huge stairs, and they would bring the animals and bring their families, and they would climb up those stairs and make their way into the temple compound, make their way into the chaos and the noise and the blood and the gore. That was kind of their stairway to heaven, if I can call it that, their path to atonement, their path to having their sins not judged for another year, and they would give their offering and, and do all of that, and then they, were, they would leave. And they'd be good with God for another year. And that's the way that some of us look at church now, right? It's not necessarily that we bring animals to kill, but our experiences with church and religion or maybe the experiences of someone that we know, that's what they think church is all about. I go to church. Maybe I bring an offering. Maybe I don't. You know, I leave my guilt there. I take my guilt there. I leave my guilt there. I get a holy man, a holy person to say some kind of formula over me. And then, you know, then I walk back out the door and then God and me, well, we're good for another year right? Some of us in this room, like you got real quiet. Like that's, that's the way we used to think of church. Maybe that's the way that you still think of church. And I don't condemn you for that. If that's all you've ever known, I get why you might feel that way. If I'd grown up in your shoes, that might be the way that I look at church. But for Jesus, when he showed up, he came to do something brand new. He came to open up brand new opportunities and brand new ways of living and existing in relationship with God. And so probably everybody that we're going to see in the story that we're about to tell used these stairs to get into the court of the Gentiles. And now they're in God territory. Now they're in a scary place and a loud place and a smelly place. And it stinks like fear and guilt and burnt animals. But this, this is where heaven and earth collided. That was God's holy place. And then one day, one morning, early in the morning, maybe around dawn, Jesus came into this place. John chapter 8, early in the morning, he came again into the temple. He came again because that's what he used to do. Came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him. There's Jesus. We see Jesus. Let's go see what Jesus has to say. And Jesus sat down and began to teach them. Right in the middle of that temple complex, right in the middle of everybody around them, the gathering around, they got their breakfast in their hands, but they want to hear what Jesus has to say. And Jesus sits down and begins teaching. But he's not teaching for very long when suddenly the scribes and the Pharisees, these were the people that were against Jesus. They didn't like Jesus' influence. They didn't like that Jesus was trying to change the culture and change the way of approaching God because they controlled the way to approach God. They made money off of people approaching and coming close to God. But the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Now here's a detail that I think we miss. Anybody familiar with this story? Raise your hand. Don't be scared. Here's a detail I think we miss when we hear this story, 
It's pretty much just after dawn. Where have these guys been all night? Like, what have they been doing? And I think they caught this woman the day or the night before. I think they had a perfect opportunity, and they wanted to use this to trap Jesus and to trick Jesus. And, and, and so, the, you know, they, they got her the day before, and they formulated this plan and used this woman who had just been through one of the most traumatic experiences in her life, of her own fault, by the way. We get that. But they're using this woman as a pawn in a political game with Jesus. So once they know Jesus is in his usual place, they, they get, you know, all the people are gathered around. There's a crowd there to watch them trap Jesus. And they drag this woman from wherever they had probably kept her since the day or the night before, drag her through the streets, drag her up these massive stone steps where everybody can see and watch the spectacle. And they drag, drag her into the temple complex, into the space where God resided, where heaven and earth collided. And they put her in the center of the court in front of Jesus. And having set her in the center of the court. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Can you imagine this scene? The sacrifices are starting up. The smells and the noises are starting up. There's a crowd around Jesus. And now this woman at the lowest point of her life is dragged in front of this crowd. And Jesus, we caught her in adultery. Like it's bad. Like it's Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, bad, Jesus. That's one of the top 10 commandments, Jesus. Like, don't kill people, don't lie, and don't commit adultery, right? Three out of the top 10. Who remembers the rest? None of us. Come on. <laughs> like, that's, all, that's what we know, right? We know those top three, and you know, I think uh, God helps those who help themselves, like, you know, cleanliness. No, this is, and Jesus, this isn't, this isn't a rumor. This isn't just an accusation. We caught her. We have saved her up overnight, and now we're serving her up to use as a pawn and trapping you. And no doubt, by now, the crowd has swelled. People have followed them in from the outside into the temple courts. They're gathered around and watching and whispering behind their hands, and they saw the, the procession, the holy men, the leaders in their community with all of their robes and their, their dignity and their power dragging an adulteress up these long stairs into the most public and accessible court and setting her in the middle of everything going on. That This is the last place she wants to be right now. Hello. And we've all felt that way a time or two coming into church, haven't we? This is the last place I want to do. She's probably been to the temple many times before, but usually she's bringing a sacrifice for her sins, but today... It feels like she might be sacrificed for her own sins. And she can see the Holy of Holies just over the wall. She can hear the sounds of the animals and the sacrifices going on. She can smell the stench of the blood and everything else that's happening in the burnt flesh. And this is where God resides. And she, in this moment in her life, she's there. This is the holy place, and she's there. This is where heaven and earth overlap and intersect, and she is there in front of a crowd with her shame exposed, her sin brought into the light. And as she listens to the sounds of the sacrifice that she knows so well, she's probably overwhelmed with the weight of what she's done. But those men don't care. Those religious leaders could not care one little bit. And they turn to Jesus and they tell him, now in the law, Moses commanded us. And here's what they're doing. They're setting Jesus up against Moses. It's Jesus versus the Old Testament. It's Jesus versus the Ten Commandments. It's Jesus versus their religious system. Moses is the guy. 
Moses brought the law straight from God, and his, his words have guided us as God's people for 1,500 years. And if there's any dispute over what's written in Moses' law, Jesus, we can walk right over there, go behind those walls, and pull out the original documents and read it for ourselves. We are in this place that some, in some way the words of Moses have shaped We can uh, look at all of this, Jesus. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Then what do you say? It's a trap. It was a trap that they had set for Jesus. And Jesus could have looked at them and not been engaged with the story. Jesus could have looked at them and said, stone her then. Like if you're so sure she's guilty and if you know what the law says, why are you bringing her here? Why are you bringing her to me? And another thing Jesus could have said is, well, let's look at everything that Moses had to say, guys. Let's go all the way back to Leviticus chapter 20. If there is a man, where's the man in this story? Where's the dude? I thought I'd get more lady amens from that. Ladies, I'm on your side. I'm trying to give you all something today. You got to work with me here, right? I mean, no lavender borders around here. Where's the man? If there is a man who commits adultery, the adulterer and the adulteress shall, shall surely be put to death. But that doesn't matter at this point to these men because they're sacred men. And they've set up a a spectacle in their sacred place. And they're manipulating sacred texts because they want to gain control of the sacred followers. And they were saying this, we know this, testing Jesus so that they might have grounds for accusing him. They're trying to separate Jesus from the crowd. They're trying to embarrass Jesus, pull him away from all of his influence. So now it's Jesus versus the temple. It's Jesus versus the law. It's Jesus versus Moses. It's Jesus versus what they would call their Bible. For us, we call it the Old Testament. So what's Jesus going to say to this? What's Jesus going to do when presented with what Moses said? And here's what Jesus did. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Jesus stooped down, doesn't answer him, doesn't say a word. And he starts doodling in the sand. And they're all standing around, getting a little bit impatient. And I think personally, maybe it doesn't matter what he wrote. We don't know what he wrote. I'm going to tell you a little bit of something about what he wrote again. But I think maybe it doesn't matter. I think that what happened in this moment, and this is just Jared's opinion. You can throw this away. It doesn't matter. I think that woman, as she was brought into that setting, I think she crumbled under the weight of her shame and what she was experiencing in that moment. I think she fell to her knees and was sobbing as all of this is going on around her. And I think what Jesus did here was to just separate himself in her eyes from everybody else around. And Jesus, when he stooped down, he was maybe the only one in that circle that was on her level. And he met her where she was in her shame and under the weight of what she had done. And he just starts writing in the sand and everybody else waited and it got really, really awkward because he wasn't saying a thing. And they all want an answer. But when they persisted in asking, they keep pressing him. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Whoever's without sin, and don't forget where we're standing, whoever is without sin, but I think every one of you has probably climbed these steps before. Whoever in this crowd is without sin, 
But tell me, guys, have any of you ever brought an offering up those steps and around the corner and given that offering to that priest so that you could have your sins atoned for one more year? Whoever is without sin, and these men have climbed these stairs. These men are guilty of sin, just like you and I and all of us and every single person every born, that's ever born has at some point given in to our own selfishness, given in to ourselves. All of us here are sinners. Nobody here is perfect, and neither were they. And men, you've climbed these stairs, and you've brought your own sacrifice. And suddenly, to these men who are trying to trap Jesus, the trap has been turned. They thought they were going to spring it on Jesus, but all of their orchestrations have made the trap spring on them because they are standing in the one place in the world to these Jewish men, the one place in the world that most reminds them of their own failure. The one location on the entire planet that most reminds them of their own sins. They've been coming there since they were young boys every year, bringing sacrifices to make an atonement for their own failures and for their own sins. And in that moment, they realize as the weight of Jesus' words shifts from the woman onto them, they realize we are no better than she We are no different than she and this woman who we have now shamed in front of everyone. She's the same as us, and we are the same as her. You see, the thing is, that day there was only one person there who had no sin, and he was the only one there without a stone in his hand. And he told them, whoever is without sin, you throw the stones first. And then Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground again, doodling. And we want to know what he was writing. How many of you want to know what he's writing? I've heard speculation and all this. They've actually done some incredible, incredible excavation work recently. And they think that they've actually found the inscription. And a lot of scholars think these were Jesus' actual words. It takes one to know one. Not really. It's not, not true. It's not true. No scholars think that. No scholars. But Jesus Jesus tells them, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. And when they heard it, they began to go out. They began to leave the temple complex one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. When the full weight of their own sin and their own guilt shifted onto them, when they realized where they were, when they remembered their sins and the things within themselves that had drove, driven them to this place before, they began to see just how not worthy they were to cast judgment on this woman. When their self-righteousness was exposed to life, and self-righteousness seems to be like the only sin that Jesus consistently just goes ballistic over. And when he exposes their self-righteousness and their own guilt, they began to go out, out from the court. They began to go out, out from the presence of God. They began to leave the epicenter of God's activity in the, on the earth. And they realize that they're not even worthy to be there. And then it happened in a certain order, right? They began, it began with the older ones first, the ones who had brought the most sacrifices to the temple. And as we get older, isn't it true that we're just more and more aware of how sinful we really are? Come on, somebody. You don't get more perfect. Jesus is the only one. You don't need grace less as you get older. You need grace more. But where sin abounds, we have a promise that His grace much more abounds. 
And he is the God of all graces. And he is the God of all mercies. And I don't care how dark your background is. I don't think how much you think your background and your history might disqualify you from receiving the grace and the mercies of God. I am here to tell you, if you think you don't deserve it, then you don't know my Jesus. If you think that you will never receive it, you don't know my Jesus. Because in spite of us being unworthy, and in spite of us as we get older, needing more and more grace, he has more and more grace to give. His mercies are brand new every morning. His love is without limits. Why does that make like seasoned Christians so nervous? Why does that make us so nervous? Like, don't say that God's got grace for every sin. Like, we, like, man, that feels uncomfortable. I don't know if you should be telling people that. Like, we're scared that people are going to get away with something, right? Didn't we get away with something? Don't we get away with something every day? Well, y'all aren't amening, so we'll move on. Some of y'all got caught up and cut off in traffic last week and you needed more grace. Hello? Somebody got your order wrong at Chick-fil-A. No, it didn't happen at Chick-fil-A. They never get your order wrong. Somebody got your order wrong at Burger King. You needed more grace. Come on, your husband left his muddy shoes on the carpet and you needed some grace. We need more and more grace. And the fact that more and more grace is on offer should not make us judgmental and stingy with what God has died to lavishly pour out into a broken and hurting world. And if we're worried about God giving too much grace away, it only means that we do not understand just how much we need His grace. Come on, somebody. Can you lift up your hands? Can you lift up your voices and tell Him right now, Jesus, I need more. Jesus, deal with me in mercy. Jesus, don't remember my past. Jesus, forget my yesterdays. Let my account be erased and let me start all over in your eyes. Jesus, I need your grace. Come on, all over the room, spend some time. Come on, thank him for grace this morning. Come on, thank him for mercy in your life this morning. They They all left, beginning with the older ones, down to the younger, and Jesus is left alone with the woman in the center of the court. And there she is now, think about this, in the place where animals are killed to atone for sin, and there she is alone with the Lamb of God, the one who came to pick up and carry away the sins of the whole world. And she doesn't even realize it. She doesn't even know it. And if you're here this morning, you might think this is just another church, another place. And I tell you right now, there's nothing special about us, but we've just created a space here where Jesus' presence and His Spirit can come into this room and it can come into these moments. And maybe you're not sure what all you believe, and maybe you're not sure how much you believe, but I'm telling you right now that you are in the presence of the Lamb of God who came to pick up and to carry away the sins of the whole world and all across this room is story after story and testimony after, after testimony that when we thought we were too far gone, he picked up our sins and he carried them away so very far from all of us. And straightening up, Jesus asked her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? 
Now, this is a big deal. He didn't say, did no one accuse you? They had accused her. He didn't say or ask her, did nobody find you guilty? She was guilty. She'd been caught in the act. But what he asked her was, is nobody left to make you pay for the consequences of what you have done? Is nobody here to condemn you? Is nobody here to pass judgment on you and execute that judgment and that penalty on your soul? Is no one here to condemn you anymore? And as she lifted her head at the words of Jesus and she began to look around, she realized in the lowest moment of her life, the moment where she is guilty before God in the place where heaven and earth collide, and she wasn't sure when she walked in there if she was going to be allowed to walk back out. She didn't know if she was going to be put to death like the law of Moses required of her. She lifted her head. She looked around, and I think there was wonder. I think there was surprise. I think there was relief. There was hope for new beginnings in her voice, and she said to Jesus, no one, no one is here to condemn me. And then Jesus says something to her that is so beautiful, and Are you ready for this? Are you ready for these words? If you've come here this morning, maybe you came here to hear these words. Maybe it's been a while. Maybe you've been carrying something around. Maybe there's been something in your life that seems like it's been dragging you around for a while. Maybe it feels like there's something on your soul and on your heart and on your conscience that's dragged you up some stone steps into the place where God resides and you weren't sure when you came here this morning what the outcome was going to be. You weren't sure when you came into this, this room this morning what you were going to leave feeling like, what you were going to leave having heard from God. Something has been beating you up and boxing you in, and you're done with carrying it around, but you don't know how to get past it. And you're not sure if that guilt and that shame is always going to own a piece of you, that somehow the suffering and the misery and, and the hell that's in your life is just there, and you're wondering if that's what you're always going to have to pay as a consequence for the things that you have done. And if you're like me, you're so desperate to hear these words from somebody like Jesus. And when he says them, they break over a soul like a brand new morning. They break on the dark night of our guilt and our shame like the sunrise of the morning. But even when he says them, we have a hard time believing they're true. But all of us have needed these words. And if you'll let him, Jesus can speak all of these words to each and every one of us. No one is here to condemn me, Lord. And Jesus said to her, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Go now and leave your life of sin. And when Jesus said this, he was saying, he was announcing that in fact he was greater than the law. He was greater than the temple system. He was greater than the guilt management religious treadmill that we so often imagine church to be. That he was, in fact, greater than guilt. That he is, in fact, greater than shame because he is greater and his love is greater than all of our sins. And Jesus came to say to her, and Jesus would say to each and every one of you, and me, all of us, that I did not come to exact justice on you to execute the penalty for the consequences of what you have done. I have not come to condemn you. And since I am not here to condemn you, because I am not here to exact that penalty from you, because I have done that, because that's how much I love you, 
then I can say what I will say next. Go now and leave your life of sin. Leave your life of sin. Leave that lifestyle. Leave that behavior pattern, that way of thinking. Leave that way of looking at life and accepting life where you're just content to sin, where you embrace your sin, where you get up in the morning and the first thing you do is reach for your sin. Leave that attitude. Leave those addictions that are killing you and instead put your trust in me. Trade your sin for something greater. Trade your sin for something greater than your guilt. Trade your sin for something greater than your shame. Trade your sin for something greater than your isolation and your fears. And this is the message of Jesus for all of us sinners. This is the message of Jesus for everybody in the room that's willing to be honest and say that, no, I'm not perfect and and I have sinned. In fact, I've sinned often and it was a habit and I was caught and it was an attitude and a way of life for me, but it's left me here and I don't know how I'm going to escape the weight of it all. And Jesus would say to all of us, it's simple because I don't condemn you. You're free from the penalty. You're free from the consequences. Your soul is washed clean by the blood that I will shed, and you can go out from this place with a different kind of guarantee and the offer of a different future for your soul. See, Jesus knows something. This is why Jesus said this. This is why Jesus tacked this on to the other part, right? We, we kind of just wish Jesus would stop with, then neither do I condemn you. Why? Why would Jesus go on and finish this out and say, go now and leave your life of sin? And I think it's because Jesus knows what we all know, that sin comes prepackaged with penalties, doesn't it? That sin kills things. Sin steals things. Sin destroys things. And we know this. If you keep doing that sin, it's going to kill your mind. If you keep living that life of sin, it's going to blacken your heart and disease your soul. Ultimately, it's going to kill your body. Sin will kill your self-respect and sin will kill your relationship. Some of us grew up in families where sin had killed our family. Sin has killed your relationship with your dad. Or maybe sin has killed your relationship with your mom. Maybe your sin has killed a career. Maybe your sin has killed your financial future. Or maybe your sin has killed an opportunity. Maybe your sin has killed a relationship, a friendship that you had in your life. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to pay God for the penalty of your sins. I will be a covering for your sins. You are going to pay the consequences with your family and it's already killed your reputation so I don't need to condemn you anymore. But because I love you and because I came here for you, leave your life of sin. Leave your life of sin. We've said this before at City Grace and I hope I say it forever. A lot of times we think that Jesus came just to forgive us of our sins but the Bible says that he came to save us from our sins. He doesn't want to leave you in the condition that, you, that he found you. He doesn't want to leave us in the condition that drives us to be those things that we so hate being, to do those things that we so hate doing, but he wants to save us from our sins. And after he told this woman, neither do I condemn you, go and leave your life of sin. Not too long after that, on a hill that was not too far away from that temple court, the Lamb of God picked up and he carried away the sins of the whole world. And with those sins on his shoulder, he climbed a different set of steps. And they would nail the Lamb of God to a wooden cross and suspend him between heaven and earth. 
and earth's rejection and heaven's condemnation on sin would collide on Jesus for the one and only time ever needed. And the conditions and the justice for her sins would be satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. And the consequences and the payment for the penalty of my sins would be forever satisfied in the death of the Lamb of God. And the justice and the penalty for your sins was forever satisfied when Jesus laid down his life on the cross. Because he loves you. Because he came here for you. Because if someone dies for you, that means they're not against you, but in fact, they are for you. He was here for you. He lives for you. He calls for you. He waits for you to not condemn you, not to shoot a lightning bolt out of heaven. Come on, some of us are worried when we first walk back into church. Like, nobody sit too close. I don't want anybody else getting electrocuted when God deals with me. He's not like that. He's not like that. He did not come to condemn you. He came to save you and to forgive you, to wash you clean, to bind up your wounds. He came to heal your broken heart and to open your eyes. He came to give you the love and the acceptance that you have been waiting for for so long. And when you think that your life is irredeemable, and when you wonder if you're too far gone, he says, neither do I condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. And you never have to wonder about his motives. His motive for you is love. It's only love. His reason for speaking is love because he knows and you know and I know that sin will kill you if you don't leave that life. It will drag you down and turn you into something so far below what he made you to be. So leave, leave your life of sin. Leave your life of sin. See, the thing is, If it wasn't the woman in the story, but if it was you or me, the ending would be exactly the same. And Jesus would say to each and every one of us, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. God is not out to get you. God does not want to kill you. Sin is already killing you. God doesn't want to join sin's team. But God wants to make you alive to a whole new life. A whole new life. And so I have a really really awkward and uncomfortable question for you this morning. What's your sin? What's your sin? Like Nobody can hear you thinking, so just put it right there front and center. What's your sin? What's that thing that you need to bring between you and God? What's that thing that you need to have exposed and brought to Him? What thing would find you dragged into whatever religious court might exist? What thing would find you accused and on trial? What thing would bring you shame and heartache? What thing has killed your family? What thing has killed a piece of your mind, made dead a piece of your heart? You can confess it today to God. You can give it today to God. And you don't do it because God wants to get you or because God is out to ostracize you and whatever, just obliterate you. But you can do it because your sin is what really wants to kill you. And Jesus has already died for your sin. See, here's the thing that's just so wonderful about confession and and moving forward towards a wonderful Savior like Jesus. With Jesus, your confession leads to restoration and never, ever to condemnation. With Jesus, confession leads to restoration and never to condemnation. With Jesus... Confession always leads to restoration, and it never leads to your condemnation. 
So confess it today. Bring it to Him today. You don't have to confess to me. Don't confess to a priest. Don't confess to someone else. Confess it to the one who stands and says to you, neither do I condemn you because He came here for you. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.